Dr. Nita Hillman. I currently work at Wildwood Lifestyle Center and Hospital in Georgia. Um, I was actually working here at Weimar for the last three years. We just, my husband and I just moved in April over to Wildwood and I, I'm an internal medicine physician, um, board certified in internal medicine, working in both as a hospitalist, meaning that if you're sick enough to have to be admitted to the hospital, then I take care of you there. Um, or, sorry, and I also do lifestyle medicine, so um, both outpatient people that want to change their lifestyle, and then additionally, um, inpatient lifestyle programs such as what they have here, 11, 18, and 25 day programs where people come, live, and want to learn how to turn around their lifestyle. Oftentimes because they are um, trying to, to um, reverse some kind of disease that they have, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey. Actually, yeah, I, had, I brought water and I don't know what I did with it. All right. No worries. Thank you. Um, so the, um, the series that we're going to do is on personal health. Um, how do you maximize your personal health so you can be effective in ministry long term? That's the overall topic that we're doing. Um, the lecture right now, we're, it's actually going to be two parts. We're going to do one and a half parts in the first hour, and then we'll do the rest of that in the second hour. Um, and the, this, the topic that we're first going to cover are nutrition pitfalls, because there are a lot of things out there, information about um, diets and nutrition and what works and what doesn't work. And we're just going to look at the evidence and the science behind it. Um, that's the first thing. And then uh, the, that's the first two things in the morning. The afternoon sessions are going to be looking at exercise. Um, that's one of those things that is, it's one, it's very challenging, especially if you haven't exercised for a long time, and then you're trying to get back into an exercise program, how to do it, what's the most effective way to do it, what are the things that are found to be the most effective, um, but then additionally, why it is that exercise seems to be one of the first things to drop when our lives get busy, because we're finding that increasingly, actually among the populations I've taken care of um, in the last four years, I've taken care of a lot of people who have been in ministry for a long time, and you know, the, this is one of the most consistent aspects that actually seems to be falling short, and once it's put into place, um, people are actually able to, to overcome a lot of the issues and the challenges, the, the health problems that they had. So we're going to talk about exercise in the afternoon. And then the fourth thing is anxiety. Anxiety is actually one of those things that is plaguing um, a lot of um, young professionals and older professionals um, in our church and ministry. And we're finding that people are cutting short their ministry um, effectiveness and time because of the fact that they that um, we don't have effective tools for being able to deal with anxiety. And we're going to look at both inspiration and evidence concerning that. Um, tomorrow, we're going to talk about... Um, let's see. Tomorrow, we're going to do... Um, overcoming addictions, um, specifically talking about appetite addictions, and then how they're related to some of the other addictions that many of us may may have. Um, the fourth and final topic will be if you're living a busy life, you're a mom, you're a um, dad, you're a person in ministry, you are a professional, you are um, you know overseas, you have multiple responsibilities, whatever that may be, and um, and you find that you don't have time to be healthy. Well. Well, over the last four years, one of the things that has been really a burden on my heart is trying to figure out how to help people to keep their health intact um, so that they can be functional in ministry for a long time. So we're going to look at just practical tips, things that people have found that have been able to help them do this long term. So those are the topics. And again, the first topics that we're looking at are nutrition. And actually, this fell out again. Let me do that. Um, let's see. I think hopefully that should come back up. Um, why don't I go ahead and start with a word of prayer? And um, well, actually, let me do this. Let me just quickly can can I just ask in general where everybody is in life? Um, it's, are how many of you are you in school right now? Um, all right, three, two in school, um, three, four, or three in school. Um, how many in high school? One. How many in college or grad school? Two. Okay, so three. And then how many are out, out and working right now? Okay, okay, four. And then, um, and then how many are enjoying the blessings of retirement now? <laughs> nice, that's wonderful. Good, 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 exciting. And some of you guys are probably busier than some of us in the environment than, than, um, that are working. So that's good. It gives me kind of an idea of, um, of what we're looking, how to tailor this for you all. Um, why don't I go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll go. 
Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to come together and to learn about the principles of nutrition and um, and how we can apply them. Most importantly, we're just asking you to please help each of us to know and to learn what these principles are so that we can apply them to our lifestyle. Um, and I pray that you would teach us what it is that we may be missing or that we could add or improve or even just tips and ways to be able to take what we've learned and be able to help others. We thank you again for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Um, amen. All right. Um, fasting. I, I, everyone's looking at me and probably thinking, I thought we were going to talk about nutrition. What on earth does fasting have to do with this? Um, the reason that I, I looked at this as fasting is um, how many of you have done probably in the last, let's say, um, year, two years, how many of you have done a fast of some kind? Huh? Yeah, yeah, even, even juice fasts, okay. So, so about, you'll probably find about two, three people will do a fast. Or, or what about, there's another word that people will use, um, a cleanse. How many people have done like a cleanse or something in the last two, three years or so? Okay, these are very common and popular terms that are used. Um, and, and let me ask you this, why? Why, um, why did you choose to do a fast? What were the reasons? Um, if you don't mind sharing, if you want to, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. It's, um, I, I frequently ask people this, especially when, when we're talking about fasting. What, what prompted you to do a fast or, or a cleanse? Um, I watched that show, um, Fat Sick and Nearly Dead. Okay. Okay. And since then, if I like overdo it on food, then I'll fast after and I get back to normal. Yeah, no, that's very common. So, so kind of just repeating what you were talking about. Um, the you're t many many of us have been in those places maybe where we haven't eaten as well um, and we haven't taken care of our body as well and we want a restart a reset and just like you were talking about in the in the documentary fat sick and nearly dead the guy who went and I believe he did a juice fast I can't remember exactly but did a juice fast for a period of time essentially to try to get rid of um, you know what they would call you know toxins or or things in their body that that had accumulated because of bad lifestyle over a period of time okay so yeah that's that's very very common in fact and then you mentioned also that when you start to notice you're headed back the other direction then you kind of go back onto a fast again to be able to um, to get to reset things okay good what, what else any other any other thoughts on why people why do you think people fast why why what are other reasons that you've seen for people fasting for a period of time I'm sorry to lose weight yeah yes fasting is then a lot of people will use it to lose weight um, any other thoughts? All right, well, let me, let me go over a couple of things. Um, when I've looked at my patients over the last four years in doing lifestyle medicine, what I found is that is what you mentioned, that very often people use fasts, oftentimes when they've not been eating well, when they've not been doing well, and they'll use the fast to be able to reset things. And it is true that we're able to reset a lot of what has been undone. And having a fast for a period of time, and we'll look at some quotations, really do actually, does actually help reset some of that. And um, one of the other reasons that people will do it is to lose weight. The interesting thing is I use fasting in our inpatient programs often. But the one thing that I mention people, to people um, is that I don't use it to lose weight, or to help people lose weight. Because losing weight isn't really the issue or the underlying problem. The underlying problem, there are some things that have led to that. But we use, in the process of weight loss, some people gain weight because they just haven't exercised enough, right? They're eating well, they just haven't exercised enough, or the timing of their eating and whatever is, wrong, is, not, is off. Or sometimes you'll find that, um, and we'll talk about timing of eating also, um, it's just the time that they're eating or the, the lack of certain components in their, in their nutrition that they, that they have not had or types of ways that they're doing their nutrition because you'll even find um, people who are completely plant-based who are, who are gain weight, um, but they're not eating a lot of calories. So what is it that's, that's going on? Why is it that they're gaining the weight? Um, so those patients in particular don't necessarily always benefit from a fast per se, but those that struggle with appetite and have um, problems with obesity or weight loss, um, those patients significantly benefit from fast. I also use fasts for patients who are, um, have high blood pressure, patients who have insulin resistance, polycystic ovarian syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, 
patients who have diabetes, prediabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. These are well-documented and studied effects for fasting. Even prostate cancer, breast cancer, and colon cancer have also been studied in the benefits of fasting. But here's the interesting thing, and I wanted to look at this, and the reason I'm, I entitled this thing on nutrition was on this quote um, that many of you have probably heard before from Spirit of Prophecy. It says, a true fasting, which should be recommended to whom? All, right? The true fasting that should be recommended to all is what's the first thing? What does it say? Abstinence from every stimulating kind of food and the proper use of wholesome, simple food which God has provided in abundance. Now, here's the thing. I mean, when you, when you look at this, what does that make you think of? I mean, do you, are you thinking of depriving yourself, per se, when you're looking at this, right? You're, are you thinking of starving for four, five, six, 10, 11, 20 days? Right, that doesn't sound like, does this even sound like our, what our definitions or thoughts of fasting often are? It's probably not a, among our, our thing. And, and I want us to come to this understanding that true fasting, and we'll look at the benefits of fasting, come down to these principles. Abstinence from every stimulating kind of food. What are stimulating kinds of foods? And let me tell you, I engaged in probably almost all of them um, while I was growing up. What, what would you think of when you think of stimulating foods? Come on, you know what those things are that, that really drive your appetite. What are some of the things? Spicy foods, yeah, really spicy. If you're, especially if you're from um, East Asia, Southern Asia, um, Central America, um, actually not, not as much Central America, but I understand in Mexico, yes, but not all parts of Central America, um, you find there's a predilection for really engaging with spicy foods. And in fact, spicy foods are used to stimulate appetite in um, in, um, in can cancer patients. So that's, that is true that very spicy foods do stimulate appetite, okay? What, others, what are other kinds of stimulating food? Yeah. Ice cream, okay? How, has anybody sat through um, one of those pint-sized things of ice cream before have, or eaten a pint-sized bowl of ice cream on your own? I see a lot of heads nodding, right? Now, you did a lot less than what I used to do. I used to actually, if you're from the south, you knew of something called bluebell ice cream, okay? Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream is my favorite type of ice cream, and I used to consume this about a half gallon, okay? I would actually put it in the refrigerator, I would melt it, and then I would drink it in one sitting about once a week. Now here's the thing, when you're sitting there and thinking about it, and, and I, I, let me tell you, there was now when I look back on it, I sit there and think to myself, how on earth could I have done that? But there was something about that food when you consumed it that sent up all these neurotransmitters in our brain that just gave us a sense of pleasure and feeling and, and being able to sort of ease. It was my escape sort of um, comforting comfort food, um, for, per se. Um, that was, that's one of them. What other types of foods do we find that tend to be very stimulating and just... Um, a lot of fried and fatty foods also. Um, understand that you can take something that is really disgusting that most people would typically not eat, and when it is fried and especially combined with salt, people will significantly cons or consume significant quantities of that food. Um, and so when you're looking at these things, you know, things of, that, are, that are very stimulating, you're talking about foods that oftentimes we, we've engaged in and we have learned. That's the important thing to understand is we've learned to like these things. Because a very interesting thing is found is that those of you who've ever noticed in the past when you've gone away from some of the foods that you've eaten in the past that were unhealthy for you, and you've gone away from it for a long period of time, and then you go back to it, it didn't give you that, it doesn't give you that same joy. Did something change in the food? Did they change the chemical makeup of the food? What was it that happened? We learn and unlearn taste. That's the good news. So the best kind of fasting that everybody can do is one to avoid stimulating kinds of foods. And we'll talk about it in addictions exactly how to avoid that, especially for those of us who struggle going back to some of those foods, especially as comfort foods. The other thing is, is what the proper use of wholesome, simple food which God has provided in abundance. There are all kinds of things that are out there about how to be able to eat well. And we're just going to go through some of those basics so that when you go, you can apply it in every situation. If I give you, just tell you what I eat every day, it may not be appealing to you. 
It may not be appealing to another culture. When we go and we do mission trips and we talk to people about, culture, um, about food and nutrition, we have to make it relevant to that culture. I can't make cashew cheese and go and serve it in, in, um, in India. People will look at me wondering, what on earth is this? You know, this doesn't look the same. But if, on the other hand, I use foods that if I teach them principles, that they can then take and apply, then they're not so lost. Because one of the things that is very sad that I found is that people will come to our programs, we'll feed them things that are a typical American diet, but we don't teach them the principles that they need to use. So then when they go back home, they don't know how to, they know how to make the food we taught them to make, but we didn't teach them the principles that they needed to actually be able to go back and do it. And then even us, um, you know, those of us who've heard about these things, all we think that the, the basic plant-based, healthy, wholesome food is, is just, you know, completely plant-based diet. Well, there's more to it than that, and we'll look at that. Um, the other thing is, other reasons that people use fasts, oftentimes is to be able to have a period of time to, to be able to spend just listening to, to God, to be able to have a clear mind without distractions. Um, so looking at two of these quotes, this one of them is from Letter 206, 1908, the other one's from 1900. Um, All the fasting in the world will not take the place of simple trust in the Word of God. Some of us use fasts inappropriately to try to coerce or twist or turn God's arm to be able to do something. But, but the interesting thing is if the type of fasting that we use doesn't come down to this principle of placing that simple trust, if it doesn't give us and bring us to the place where we have that simple trust in God, then the fasting really is not of a great amount of value. Um, he says... Ask, he says, and you shall receive. You're not called upon to fast for 40 days. I really appreciated this statement. You're not called upon to fast for 40 days. The Lord bore that fast for you in the wilderness of temptation. There would be no virtue in the fast, but there is virtue in the blood of Christ. In the sense that, you know, fasting isn't going to twist or turn God's arm, and we don't have to go and repeat what Christ has done. He's overcome for us in the area of appetite, and there are things that we can do to be able to gain that strength and use the strength and power He's given us to be able to overcome in the areas of appetite that we're going to talk about. Um, but you don't need to go and to do long periods of fasting to be able to, um, to, to um, draw out God. Now, on the other hand, whenever we do fast, and we'll talk about what different types of fast are, the spirit of true fasting and prayer is a spirit that yields the mind, heart, and the will to God because not everybody can do a full, complete fast and stay healthy. Full, complete meaning just doing a water fast only and stay healthy. So again, we're going to talk about what those principles are. What are the benefits of fasting? There is actually a significant amount of medical literature um, concerning fasting. And I mentioned to you what some of those are. There's a thing called insulin resistance. Many of you have heard of it in the terms of diabetes, right? We think of diabetes, and specifically type 2 diabetes, in which we're producing insulin, but we have um, an increased insulin resistance. What happens is this. I prick your blood sugar. I prick your, your finger to get a blood sugar. And it looks normal for many, many years. Then all of a sudden, someday, I don't know, you're 30, 40, 50, whatever it may be, I prick your, blood, your finger for a blood sugar, and all of a sudden, it's 200. Wait a second. Did the diabetes all of a sudden pop up overnight? Well, what we've actually found is that over years, over the years, we've actually been doing things to our body that have, been, have caused them to become insulin resistant to where our bodies don't respond to the insulin anymore. And what ends up happening is that your blood sugar looks normal because we don't measure insulin levels. Our body has actually been cranking out more insulin than what we need to be able to do the job that we need to do, but our blood sugar looked okay for so many years, and after a while it can't do the job anymore. Diseases like that are significantly benefited from fasting, and that's even the true fast that we talked about. We're not even talking about 72-hour fast, 11-day fast, 10-day fast. Just simple, wholesome, nutritious food as mentioned before with the principles that we're going to talk about in the next little lecture. It does reset appetite. We release certain hormones, and we're going to look at certain hormones that are released um, when we do eat the way that God intended for us to eat. Some of those include hormones called GLP-1, um, GLP-1, CCK, um, uh, peptide YY. Um, these hormones literally are 
when we eat properly are released and help us stay satiated longer. Wouldn't you like to not feel hungry and feel like you want to eat constantly and snacking and needing to munch on something all the time? And again, interestingly, we can do this by eating a proper nutritious meal as, as, um, as we talk about. The other thing is this thing, it's called, um, there's a molecule in our body produced by our fat cells. The fat cells around the center, they're actually good for us. <laughs> our body needs them. If we lost all of them, we would be in significant uh, trouble. It produces certain hormones when we have an adequate amount and not excess amount, and one of those hormones is called adiponectin. This hormone actually helps dilate our blood vessels. It's like a ni natural nitroglycerin under the tongue to help open up your blood vessels, improve circulation. But what is really fascinating about it is that it also promotes new blood vessel growth. What does that mean? That means that sometimes um, there are things that will cause injury to our tissues. But if we incorporate good eating habits, good appropriate uses of fast, and we'll talk about what those are, that we can actually increase blood vessel growth to regenerate those tissues. One of the things that we found, British Medical Journal, um, and in Britain they do this for patients who have undergone a heart attack. They've damaged muscle tissue. And they will put them on a fast for 72 hours, and what they find is they're able to recover more dead tissue, or I guess not recover dead tissue, tissue that would have otherwise died if they put them on the fast for a period of time because new blood vessels have formed to be able to feed that tissue that was actually otherwise injured. We see this in peripheral vascular disease when people have um, poor circulation going to their muscles. And when they're placed on a fast, again, you increase this new blood vessel growth. But many of us do not actually ever put principles into place that allow us to develop this part of our body. Many of our blood vessels in our body have the potential to, to develop collateral or bi natural bypasses. But oftentimes our lifestyle actually prevents us from being able to utilize this in our body. And again, one of the things of, of true fasting um, is that it, it benefits in that way. In many cases of the sick, this is another quote from Ministry of Healing, in many cases of sickness, the very best remedy is for the patient to fast for a meal of two or two that the overworked organs of digestion may have an opportunity to rest. I remember reading this and thinking, what on earth is she talking about? I mean, I guess they don't have to work, but, but does it really do something for the gastrointestinal system? There's a thing, actually, um, two years ago, um, one of my students um, had, in doing a research project here on campus, talked about or taught me, um, retaught me about something that I'd learned back in medical school but had put away on the side. It's a thing called a migrating motor complex. It's quite a fascinating thing. What it is is this. In our body, and um, when you look at the gastrointestinal system, and this is just kind of a crude picture of it, at the top over here is the, um, is the esophagus. This is the stomach. Here's your small intestine. Um, what happens is when you put food in there, it starts to contract. There's a mechanical process of digesting and then a chemical process also of the digestion. Food will sit in the stomach and mechanically digest for about three to four hours in general. Now again, that's if you don't already have problems with, with your digestion. This isn't a good, healthy um, digestive system. Um, then what will happen is towards the end of that three to four hours, when the stomach is ready to empty, there will be a series of electrical impulses because the stomach or the GI system has its own electrical wiring. Okay, It will start this electrical impulse that will help to empty out the stomach and then push food all the way down through that small intestine in a series. The process from emptying the stomach all the way through the small intestine lasts about 100 to 150 minutes. On average, that's 120 minutes, about two hours. Okay, now Do a little bit of math for me here. Three hours, three to four hours in the stomach, plus another two hours is roughly what? Five to six, and that's already on the board, so that's good for you in case anyone was getting tired. About five to six hours, okay? What does that mean? The reason that this is important is that there are two things that will stop this process from going forward. One of those, actually we'll just pop to the next slide, um, 
is actually this, I'll read the quote here on the second part first. The migrating motor complex is a cyclic recurring motility pattern that occurs in the stomach and small bowel during fasting and it is interrupted by feeding. Now when they mean fasting, it means when you stop putting food in your mouth, okay? Not when there's absolutely no food in your stomach. It's interrupted by what? Feeding. That means that as this process is going through, that three to four hours of the initial plus another 100 to 120 minutes, we'll go back to the other picture here, the other 100 to 120 minutes of food going through here, if anywhere in that three to four, sorry, that five to six hours total, we put food back into our mouth again, we stop the system from working. And then it resets before it actually starts moving food all the way through again. Why is this important? Because one of the things that we talked about, we're going to talk about our principles of how you eat, okay? And one of the fads recently has been doing grazing, right? Grazing all throughout the day, six small meals a day. People have heard this frequently. And the very interesting thing is there, are, there is a reason behind why people have recommended that, and we'll talk about those reasons why. Um, but understand that if you are frequently eating every three to four hours, you will inhibit this process from actually going through. What happens when it doesn't work properly? The physiological role of the MMC, the migrating motor complex, isn't fully well understood, but it's absent. So when we stop it in the middle by eating in between, it's been associated with gastroparesis. What on earth does that big word mean, gastroparesis? When you hear gastro, what do you think of? Stomach. And when you think of paresis, what do you think of? Paralysis. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's true. Paralysis. So, so gastroparesis, when the stomach doesn't contract and move food forward, so it just sits there. Symptoms that people will feel are bloating or indigestion or a lot of reflux that will happen, okay? The other thing that happens when we are not allowing the MMC to fully go through is an, a, a problem called intestinal pseudo-obstruction. What that means is if the bowels actually act as though they're not moving forward or that they're not contracting or they're, they're, like they're obstructed, like something is keeping it from moving forward, and it's sort of a paralysis itself of the small bowel. The final thing that we've known that is associated with this is small bowel intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Essentially what that means is this. When you have good bacteria in your GI system, if this system, if this migrating motor complex is not allowed to work as it should, if we're repeatedly interrupting it with food, we end up having more or an abundance of the quote-unquote bad bacteria in relation to the good bacteria. Have you heard anything about probiotics, right? It's a big phase to go into take a whole bunch of probiotics. There's a reason, because what we're noticing is the amount of good bacteria in our system has actually been depleted. And so people are trying to restore it, when interestingly, if we would follow some of the basic principles of nutrition, we could keep that bacteria healthy simply by following those principles that we've talked about, which include keeping the five to six hours between meals without anything else in between. Here's the other interesting thing. Can anyone read this last statement here? What, what else has been known to stop the MMC from working? stress and anxiety. We start getting really worried or panicked or not able to deal with things appropriately. What ends up happening is we stop this electrical contracting pattern through the small bowel. Especially those of us who tend to worry. We're sitting and we're working while we're eating instead of eating. Or we're going through the day constantly worried, panicked, frustrated, worrying about this and that and other things. We end up having a lot of problems with our GI system, but many of us know that. We know that stress affects our gastrointestinal system, right? And it's not even stress, but specifically how we deal with that stress. So one of the things that, we're, we, that we'll talk about again is what, not only what we eat, but how and when we eat that actually is very important. There's a whole system that is geared towards us eating at appropriate times, not just the con uh, con consistency of what it is that we're eating, okay? Benefits to the, to the uh, fasting also. Those who eat and keep that time between the meals, plus we'll talk about other versions of fasting, 
um, have better immune system function, better able to fight disease. Partly your it's because your gastrointestinal system is actually part of your immune system too. And we don't even think about that. But there are, there are those bacteria there help with fighting infection, but additionally, we have, um, we have our lymph system that is associated with the gastrointestinal system that has benefited when we are uh, utilizing an appropriate fast. Breast cancer, colon cancer, significant research that has found when we incorporate appropriate fasting, to, we are actually able to combat and improve or stop tumor growth. Um, this is looking at, um, looking at high blood pressure. I won't go through in detail. If you guys want any of these slides, I'm happy to, to um, email them to you also. Um, this was looking at 174 patients who had um, high blood pressure, people who had blood pressures that are above 140 over 90. And let me tell you, probably one of the things that I'm finding most necessarily, people who eat a plant-based diet, but yet um, later on in life, as we hit the 50s, 60s, are struggling with high blood pressure. Now, the high blood pressure in and of itself may not be debilitating them, but the medications that they're having to take as a result of it make them feel sluggish, interrupt um, their steadiness, their balance, and other things. Again, I, I, I don't advocate just dropping your medications, but oftentimes if you can prevent this, it would be very helpful. One of the things that they've done on this program, they actually put people on a fast, an extended fast for a period of time. They first had a limited fast where they were just eating fruits and vegetables, um, and they did it for about two to three days, and then what they did was they put them on a water-only fast for about 10 to 11 days just to reset the system. Then they put them, on, after that, for another week on a low-fat, low-sodium, plant-based diet. And what we found is, now, if you're counting all of these days, um, you're talking about roughly about two and three weeks, okay? Within three weeks, what they found is that 90% of these, um, sorry, 90% of these subjects were able to actually get a blood pressure less than 140 over 90, okay? What was really amazing is this. People with the worst high blood pressure, okay, those that had a blood pressure over 180 over 110, had an average reduction of how much on their blood pressure? A reduction of 60 millimeters of mercury on the top number and 17 on the bottom number, okay? Just in three weeks. The other thing, uh, and then it mentioned that every one of them that were actually taking um, high blood pressure medication at the beginning of it were able to successfully and stop taking the medication long term. There's a benefit to eating well and eating in such a way, like we talked about at the beginning, of what a true fast is, the way that God gave us the opportunity to do so. And this is a reference if you need the, um, need the article later. So what does that mean? When we talked about a true fast, what does a true fast actually look like? The ideal that we were given were three meals a day with the lightest, last meal being the lightest one. What do they mean by light? Does that mean physically the food being just a smaller quantity? Not necessarily, because what that means, because oftentimes people can take a whole bunch of nuts that just fit into your hand, right? And we can eat a very calorically dense meal. What we're talking about is that calorically, the largest amount of food is actually eaten at the beginning of the day. The next amount is eaten, eaten the next largest amount is eaten at lunch, and then light to no supper. Not everybody can do just two meals a day, but there are actually quite a few people um, who are able to do it and able to do it pretty well. But the other thing is this, not having that last meal past 6 or 6.30 tends to promote maximal health. Five to six hours at least between the meals too. The other way that people can do this is by having two meals a day, okay? One of the things that is actually, um, is so people ask, well, what about the timing in two meals a day? When, when can you eat? L ideally, you're, you're not eating anything past 2 to 3 p.m. So two meals a day doesn't mean you skip breakfast, you eat something for lunch, and then something for dinner, okay? Actually, and that's actually health debilitating. It will, we'll talk about why the importance of breakfast. Um, as much as possible, simple foods um, that are that you need you do need to process them. Okay, some people talk about eating completely 100% raw. Understand that there are certain foods that do need to be adequately cooked, like your grains and your beans. And again, there's good counsel that is given to us concerning that too. Um, the other th way to consider this is um, eating two to three meals a day, but fasting once a week. That's one of the things that's been given to us in, ca in council. But there's also research talking about all those benefits we talked about of fasting. 
being um, coming out when a person also considers doing a fast for one day a week. Now, um, that one day a week of a fast can be something um, just eating, you know, lighter meals for two or three of those meals. You're still doing only two to three meals in the day. That's not eating six times throughout the day, right? It's two to three meals during the day. But then it's additionally, um, or it can just be a full fast of just water. Now, again, be careful. If you're on medications, unless you're supervised, you really don't want to be taking, uh, doing a, a complete fast without, um, without um, consulting a physician or doing it under supervision. The basic parts of this are following a healthy eating pattern throughout the week. And here's the challenge. Remember we talked about at the beginning that many times we use the fast, we end up not eating well throughout the week or for maybe several weeks, and then all of a sudden we use a fast to try to get back to normal again. Or we use a cleanse to get back to normal again. And one of the challenges is, is that what we really should be doing, we would benefit even better if we can keep a healthy lifestyle long term. Um, for us, the other way that people sometimes will use um, fasting is just for a period of time eliminating something that they know um, is not good for their nutrition because not everybody can get rid of everything all at once. Even eliminating small things one at a time for a period of time, they find they don't have the taste for those things. And we'll talk about that in the addiction lecture tomorrow. The other thing is also for a set time, eliminating things that are maybe healthy but that you're going to set aside during a period of time. If we're talking about doing, it for, doing fasting for spiritual fasting. Um, or um, giving up a something small like a dessert or a special spread or something that you frequently use for a period of time. Again, those are things that are, that are more um, spiritual fasting, not necessarily fasting that is, is always beneficial for the other things that we talked about. Um, under supervision, two to three day full fast, or like we talked about the high blood pressure program supervision for a long-term period of fasting has also been shown to, to be helpful. But the one thing to know, no matter what type of fasting you choose to do, you've got to adequately hydrate. When you are eating appropriate um, um, or fasting, you will actually auto-diurese or get rid of fluid. So you actually have to eat, drink in excess of the amount of fluid that you normally need to keep your body um, in check and stable, okay? Let me just, I'm going to turn really quickly. What are those principles um, of nutrition? So this is the second part of the presentation. Um, and what and I'll do, I'll go till, um, so we started, I believe, at 9.45, if I remember correctly. Is that correct? 9.45 is what we started. I'm just going to go until, um, uh, until five minutes till 10.40, so 10.40. And then what we'll do is, um, oh, what we'll do is um, break and then come back and finish. Um, all right. So looking at the fast, what are those principles of nutrition? Where are, we, um, where are we following or falling back? The reason, again, that I mentioned I'm interested in this topic is that we find people who have been eating plant-based for such a long time, but they're missing certain principles of basic nutrition. And many of these things have been given to us, as we mentioned, um, in, in Spirit of Prophecy and then backed up by a lot of the science that we're seeing nowadays. Um, this was back in 1884. It's quite a common custom for people of the world to eat three times a day besides eating at irregular intervals between the meals, right? Have any of us been, um, been uh, I guess, subject to that ourselves, eating in between and snacking? You know, or I remember someone once telling me, I'm not snacking, I'm just eating frequently, you know? And again, the interesting, and it's, it's true, many of us, again, think, had thought that that was probably better for our health, grazing. What she mentioned also is that the last meal is generally the most hearty and often taken just before retiring. So this is back in 1884. Still one of some of the same things that, that happen nowadays. Why is it that the evening meal tends to be the biggest meal? What is usually the reason? Because it wasn't always this way. Any thoughts as to... Yeah, well, yeah, to be able to actually sit down and to have a meal, right? Because what are we usually running and doing when we, when we are having breakfast in the morning, right? We're grabbing something, blending it up really quickly, and taking it on the road to, to eat as we go, right? Um, the other thing is it's oftentimes the only meal where families are together. And so food being a very cultural and a very um, family and community and social thing, the evening meal tends to be a lot heavier. And somewhere in there, 
We've lost the art of being able to socialize and spend time together, enjoying meals that maybe are a little bit simpler in the evening. But, but again, this was a case even back then, back in 1884, when she was reading this. This is reversing the natural order. The hearty meal should never be taken so late in the day. Should these persons change their practice and eat but two meals a day and nothing between meals? And then what does she say? Not even an apple, a nut, or any kind of fruit. The result would be seen in good appetite and greatly improved health. You know, we've had so many um, people come to us, both people that are Adventists, those are non-Adventists, who have eaten plant-based for a long time, but they have significant gastrointestinal issues. And yet... When we do something simple, telling them, look, nothing in between meals, nothing at all, not one little nut, not one little fruit, and they're like, it's just one nut, that's it, or it's just a little handful of that's nothing much. Come on, Dr. Hillman, you're going to extremes, right? When not eating anything in between that meal, the funny thing is, reflux goes away. They're bloating, the gas... The feelings of indigestion go away simply by keeping that time. And it's a very basic principle. Just that simple fact of being able to keep that time between the meals away. So eating the two to three meals a day. Many, most people enjoy better health when eating two meals a day rather than three. Um, than three others under existing their existing circumstance may require something to eat at supper time. The important thing, principle behind this is to understand not everybody can eat two meals a day and do okay. A vast majority of people really can. And I've had patients who told me, I've never missed a meal in my entire life. I will never be able to do this. And yet they're able to do, in fact, many of them will fast for the three days and do really well and, and gain a control of appetite that they haven't had in a long time. Um, but understand that some people benefit better from two meals a day, some people from three. And you're just going to have to see, you know, try and see and look to be able to figure out. One of the things that we're, taught, we're told in Spirit of Prophecy is to reason from cause to effect, right? Find out what works best for you and see how well you do um, with that and, and where how you function the most ideal. Now understand that when you're first going to doing two meals a day, if you're used to eating three meals or five or six meals, you're not going to feel really great, okay? So giving it about a week, two weeks to get the system, let the system reset will give you a better idea of whether or not you do better on two versus three meals a day, okay? This is a very interesting statement. The stomach may be educated to desire food eight times a day and feel faint if it's not supplied. But this is no argument in favor of so frequent eating. This is very, very common. We would get guests that would come through our programs and they're used to eating frequently throughout the day and they say, I feel horrendous if I'm missing that meal. I mean, they're looking at me and they're just saying, I'm going to die. And I'm thinking, no, you're not, but don't worry. We'll work through this. We'll get through and we'll have them drink a glass of water. We'll take them, go, go to having them um, taking a walk for a period of time. And the funniest thing that will happen, all of a sudden, somewhere along that process, in the 10, 11 days, or in the um, you know, 18 or 21 days, all of a sudden, they eat breakfast, and they're not hungry. They come to lunch, and they actually ask the question, do I have to eat right now? And these are people who were so used to eating two, three times between breakfast and lunch. It can be changed if we put certain principles into place. And again, so just because you feel faint, and if you are used to eating, eating frequently, it is not uncommon when you stop doing that to actually feel like you're going to pass out your... And you, and you won't. We check blood pressures. We check people's blood sugars. We make sure that they're making good urine output. We check their electrolytes, make sure they're doing fine. They're doing okay, but they feel horrendous because they're used to desiring to eat multiple times a day. Um, other principles of nutrition. So five to six hours between the meal with nothing but pure water between the meals. We talked about the migrating motor complex. And remember, the importance of this is understanding. It cannot move through appropriately if you are not eating and leaving that time in between for the food to go through. It will sit and it will literally stop until the next set of food that you had put in is properly digested and ready to go, go out of the system. Okay? It's a type of a paralysis of the, of the gastrointestinal system that is happening because we keep interrupting that meal.
okay, or that digestive process rather. rather. Um, let me ask you, um, or let me just mention one thing. This process, once that 120 minutes is finished where the food is going through the small intestine, it will, if there's no more food in the stomach, it will reset and go again. So if in two hours after it's finished, that's that last part that we were talking about, if there's no food introduced in the stomach, it will reset and start moving the food again all the way through. If again in two hours the same thing happens, it will keep moving all the way through. In fact, back in the 1980s when they talked about this, they thought, well, maybe it's some type of cleansing process or cleaning out process of the gastrointestinal system. And one of the reasons that we're able to prevent diseases such as um, diverticulitis and um, diverticulitis and appendicitis where food is just stuck and doesn't move through. Let me ask you something. Is there any period during our day, if we're eating appropriately, where we would have no food in our stomach reintroduced for maybe five, six, seven, eight hours? At night, right? At night, ideally. So you've heard people that get up in the middle of the night, they can't sleep, right? And they go, they go to the refrigerator, well, I'll just sit here and I'll munch on something in between. It's not really going to hurt me. I'm not eating that big, that big of a meal. And the interesting thing is that God had designed us with the purpose of being able to actually not have anything going through our system from that last meal, 6, 6.30, whatever it may be, all the way up until 6 the next morning. So that we have this process of moving food through our stomach and cleaning out our intestine. To me, that is the best cleanse that we can give our system. So many of our colon cleanses contain natural products in them, including natural products like senna. I remember patients coming and telling me, I do a colon cleanse about once a week. And they're using bowel stimulants, natural ones like senna, to move their bowels through. You know, what is actually ending up happening is that we're, we're washing out our good bacteria in our intestines as we're doing that and disrupting the normal flora, the good bacteria that are hanging out in our system in the process. When instead, the best way to maintain this is actually just to be able to eat appropriately. In fact, what we'll find is that when patients start to eat a more appropriate meal, they're better able to have good bowel movements and um, if, they, if they incorporate this. Um, breakfast is the largest meal of the day. This is, um, why breakfast, right? So many people have asked this question, I'm too busy. Let me tell you, there are three things that I found among um, uh, people in ministry that I've treated over the last four years. Three things that tend to go away very quickly when we get busy. Number one is breakfast. And it's not just breakfast, but actually taking time to sit down and to eat breakfast. So many times people will eat breakfast. It's maybe a coffee and a donut, or it will be you know, a quick little smoothie that they put together and then ran out the door. Um, or they will, um, they will eat, I don't know, leftover pizza. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things. I've done them myself too, you know, ice cream, whatever it may be in the, in the middle of the morning as you run out the door, okay? Um, that's one thing. Breakfast is one of the first things that goes. Exercise is the second thing that goes. And then, um, sorry, and I was going to mention what the third thing was, ah, and water. Those are the three things, some of the very simple, basic things concerning our health that tend to walk out the door. And when these things are restored and people go back to eating this, we find the reversal of disease. And you're thinking, we didn't give them anything fancy give them any fancy herbs, they didn't give them any fancy supplements or anything, but simply going back to those basic principles of exercising, eating breakfast, drinking water, simply improve them. In this, this is actually looking at patients who are prone to diabetes, pre-diabetic, obese individuals, people having a difficult time with losing weight, okay? They had them eating 1,400 calories for about 12 weeks. And let me tell you something, people will think that's such a small amount of food, 1,400 calories, I can't function on that. The interesting thing is what they were eating is they're eating nutritionally dense food that was, um, that, sorry, nutritionally dense food that was um, not calorically dense. Does that make sense, right? You can eat a lot of salad and not consume a lot of calories in that. You can eat a lot of fruit and, fruit and eat, I said, not drink a lot of fruit. You can eat, drink, eat a lot of fruit and not consume a lot of calories in that, right? Um, so in this study, they had, everybody had 500 calories for lunch. Um, this, was a, this was a study done, I think this was 2013. Um, 
Every, there was a study that was done back in the 1980s, similar to this, was repeated a little bit more elegantly done in 2013. Everybody had 500 calories for lunch. Um, the other, but then there were two groups. One group had 200 calories for breakfast and 700 for dinner. Sorry, and that should be breakfast, dinner. Sorry. Um, so 200 calories for breakfast and 700 calories for dinner, or they had 700 calories for breakfast and 200 calories for dinner. Does that make sense? So either they had a, they, everybody had the same amount for lunch, and they either had uh, most of their calories in breakfast, or they had most of their calories at dinner. Right? It's a basic premise in which they were studying, starting with these people. In those that had, that were, they were eating the breakfast as the higher um, calorie meal, they had greater weight loss reduction in their inches, so the waist circumference. Because remember, the more dangerous fat is the fat that's hanging around the middle. People are always asking me, how do I get rid of this fat that's in the middle? One of the places to start is eating your biggest meal at breakfast. They were able to show a significant reduction in waist circumference when their biggest meal was at breakfast. Um, the other thing that they notice is that there are certain markers, their fasting blood sugar, their amount of insulin that the pancreas was cranking out for the same quantity of food actually went down if they were eating breakfast consistently. And then ghrelin, which is essentially a, um, something that helps us with being able to tell whether we're satisfied and not needing more food. But fasting glucose, insulin, so essentially what you notice is that other things that... Um, other things that, uh, what was I going to say? Um, these are things that were reduced in everybody, but those who ate breakfast significantly had a greater reduction in those same, same components. Okay? So everybody, just by eating 1,400 calories rather than eating 2,000 calories, had improvement. But when you ate it at breakfast, you had a more compounded effect um, by if, you, if you put all those calories um, at breakfast. Triglyceride levels, okay? This is one of those things that's associated with diabetes, prediabetes, or um, associated with heart disease. Triglyceride levels decreased by 33% in the breakfast group, okay? And that's all they did. It was just changing where their calories were, okay? But only 14.6% in the group that had the dinner-heavy um, uh, meals. The other thing that they did is, they, again, they did an oral glucose tolerance test, and what they found, again, was a similar thing, that there was less glucose, their blood sugars were a lot better when they ate the majority of their calories at breakfast. So again, what I'm trying to tell you is, eat breakfast and eat it well. Your body responds to it better. There was another study, um, let me actually, the other thing also, just to let you know, those that ate breakfast the most, or that had the most calories at breakfast, they were more satiated. Does everybody understand what satiety or satiate, being satiated means? It means that they're satisfied longer. They don't, they're not having to the, have the feeling of needing to snack again. Okay? Just by eating breakfast as one of the, the bigger meals for the day. Um, this is actually a combination of data from Mayo Clinic National Weight Control Registry and the Journal of the American Dietetics Association. What happens when you eat breakfast and you eat breakfast well? Um, if you don't eat breakfast, your metabolism slows down, okay? Your body will actually conserve energy throughout the day, even though you're active. So you'll, it'll be much more difficult to lose weight if you're trying to lose weight or to maintain a healthy weight or prevent weight gain. Um, it gives you fuel for your brain for the day to be able to think, do what you need to do. People, children especially, who had breakfast and a good breakfast in the morning were able to be more efficient in their work and their attention times are actually significantly improved. It gives you a ready source of glycogen storage for your muscles to use. So people that had to be walking and on their feet active daily, long term, were able to do better if they had breakfast than if those that skipped breakfast. Boosts your energy for the day. In fact, they found that people who ate breakfast consistently were actually more likely to exercise and not feel as lethargic and not willing to exercise than those that, that skipped breakfast. Um, they were also less likely to um, uh, sympathy eat, essentially meaning that they were less likely to um, comfort eat. I guess it's the best, best way to mention. It also prevented binge eating later, right? You skip breakfast, you go to work, and somebody brings donuts. Somebody always brings donuts, right? There's uh, somewhere, or somebody is always have, has a bake sale or something that's going on, and you didn't eat breakfast that morning, so you grab the, grab the food that's there at the, the bake sale. 
Um, breakfast in in eaters also tended to eat less fat throughout the day. Essentially, they were going for the less, they were not eating, consuming a lot of fatty snacks, fried foods, chips, um, candy, Snickers bars, things like that. Breakfast eaters also tended to take fewer calories out throughout the rest of the day, and part of the reason was because they were not, um, they were not as hungry. The other thing that's, that's neat is this. You know, Spirit of Prophecy talks about having regular times for meals. That includes breakfast. Um, in these studies, there are a series of uh, three different studies. The first one was actually looking at mice models, because we can't measure all of these levels in, um, in uh, humans as well. But it showed that animals that had their daily first meal, so their, you know, the breakfast, what we would call um, breakfast, that meal set the circadian rhythm for the day. If you're having problems with sleep, if you're having problems with just feeling fatigued and tired throughout the day, if you consistently, regularly ate a good breakfast in these, in these models, they were actually able to have a better set and regularity to their circadian rhythm. But one of the things that they found is that what you ate at dinner time, especially if it was heavier, tends to increase what they call lipogenesis, essentially increasing your fat tissue, the density of your fat tissue, or then if you ate really heavily, the number of your amounts of your fat tissue. Um, those, on the other hand, who, um, uh, those, and those that skipped breakfast, what they found is late at night, they would, the, the actual breakdown of fat in the body was actually slowed down or inhibited. So if you're trying to lose fat in your body and you're skipping breakfast, or you're eating a, and then eating a very heavy meal in the evening, you're actually working against yourself. Because you can be really skinny weight-wise, but have an increased amount of fat, especially in the center, that is very dangerous. Um, and then, as I mentioned, lipogenesis is increased, too, so increasing, increased in the amount of food that's made. One of the things I also want to ma- mention, people always ask, breakfast, right? I'm going to eat breakfast. What does my breakfast have to consume? There was a young lady who's actually um, at Wilder that I was talking to recently. She had not been eating breakfast. And the reason she wasn't eating breakfast is she said, I can't eat these American breakfasts. I don't like oatmeal in the morning with fruits and whatever. And I, so I asked her, why are you eating oatmeal and fruit in the morning then? Right? Your breakfast, there are just certain components that need to be there. But you can make it whatever you want to. It can be savory or it can be sweet. It doesn't matter. You choose. You pick. Um, these are just different types of breakfast from all around the world, other places. I mean, everything from you know couscous and quinoa to um, breakfast beans on toast, um, soups, tomatoes. Um, these, you know, this is oatmeal. It had a you know there was a bean spread with avocados and onions. I mean, this is gorgeous food. Your food does not have to look like you know a bowl of cereal and and milk. But again. Um, Breakfast just means that there are, you're getting all the nutritional components that you need for breakfast. Some people love breakfast burritos also. Um, the components of breakfast that are ideal, okay? Now again, you mix and match this however that you want to, and it can be savory or it can be sweet, but the ideal breakfasts usually have at least two servings of whole grains. One of the things we have to get away from thinking is that carbs are bad. Carbs are not what make people gain weight. This happens over and over again. You know, when we put people in our programs, um, you know, we teach them their nutrition principles, they are getting 70 to 75%, sometimes up to 80% of their calories from carbohydrates. But it is not necessarily the amount of carbohydrates, but the, the quality of the carbohydrates that they're getting, right? You can go to the store and get artisan, wonderfully homemade bread, that's just white flour, right? Or you can get whole grains and eat from the variety of the whole grains out there. Your whole grains can be anything. You're talking about, we're talking about a serving. A serving is roughly, roughly a half cup of any of your cooked cereals, a third of a cup of brown rice, a piece of toast, one pancake that's about the size of your palm from your whole grains. You're talking about anything, oatmeal, quinoa, millet, triticale, barley, rye, dry cereal if you want to. It doesn't have to be cooked. But find something, pick it, and eat it. And here's the thing. You know, I'm not going to talk much about gastrointestinal health in general, but if you're having trouble with bloating, if you're having trouble with indigestion, a lot of GI symptoms, the drier your food, the more that it requires you to masticate, the better that you actually do in decreasing bloating, reflux, abdominal distension, especially after meals. The more liquid the food, 
the more soft the food and the less mastication and chewing that's required, the more that you will have problems with, um, with, uh, with your GI system. Two to three servings of fruit, okay? That's one way. Now, here's the thing. If you do a savory breakfast, it could maybe instead be, um, be, be vegetables that you do in the morning. You know, again, pick however you want to. Um, you want ideally seven to ten servings of fruits and vegetables a day. They may recommend five. The ideal is actually seven, especially if you're trying to prevent cancer. Um, two to three servings, a medium banana, half a cup of berries, half a cup of cut fruit, orange that is about the size of a softball, two mandarins or plums, 15 to 20 grapes. This is kind of just a rough idea of what serving sizes look like, okay? Um, healthy fat, have some kind of healthy fat in there, okay? Now, how do you eat your nuts? Again, you choose how you eat your nuts if you want them in there. Um, your nuts or your seeds, flaxseed, chia seed, walnuts, almonds, it doesn't matter. Pick your Pick your nuts, put them in there, get your good healthy fats and your monounsaturated fats protect your heart. Um, for those that have diabetes or are trying to lose weight or have struggle or are struggling with appetite, if you add this one simple thing, a serving of some kind of beans or legume, you actually are able to significantly improve or curb the issues with satiety, appetite, um, and um, sorry, with appetite and then weight loss and especially the rapid rise in the blood sugars after meals, okay? Again, like we talked about flaxseed, um, your flaxseed does have to be ground. Your chia seeds don't necessarily have to be ground. Um, one to two tablespoons. Minimize or eliminate sugar and use your fruit instead, your dried fruit, um, naturally dried fruit, not fru fruit that is dried and then dumped with sugar on it. Use your dried fruit or your fruit to sweeten your foods, okay? And again, you can use this in any combination, any way that you want, and build a breakfast. And like we showed you, that breakfast can look so different from person to person, right? Um, we're going to take a quick break, um, and then we'll keep going through some of the other components. Um, any questions really quickly before I, of what we talked about so far? We're going to get into, in the next little bit, we're going to get into fats, um, the use of fats, what, which ones are healthy, which ones are not. We're going to talk a little bit about chewing and the research behind chewing. Um, we'll also look, um, look at walking and meals and the differences that that makes. Um, any questions at all? Yes. Yes, yes. The two meals a day. So, it, you know, one of the things that um, we found is there are there are kids that are actually able to do it if they get an adequate. But here's the challenge: if a person chooses to do two meals a day, they've got to make sure that they're getting adequate um, adequate nutrition in that time. Because you can end up eating very little at those meals and not being able to get the wide variety of nutrition that you need. And so there are people that raise their kids on two meals a day and they're healthy, strong, and doing great. But the one reason I, I just, I encourage people to just be cautious about it. Again, I'm not a pediatrician, but just looking theoretically at, you know, children, um, children are very metabolically active. There's, they're doing a lot of growing process and they're needing a lot of nutrients during their growing time. It doesn't mean they need an excess amount, but you do need to be careful when you are, if you're gonna choose to do skip that third meal, make sure that they're adequately getting the servings of, of fruits and vegetables that they need in the day, that they're getting the servings of the whole grains and other things like that. These servings apply to adults, okay? They're adult servings. These are not children's servings. And I and unfortunately, I'm not a pediatrician, so I don't know. But if you, if you look at what serving sizes are for kids and make sure they get the adequate nutrition, they're people that are actually very successful at being able to do the two, three meals a day, or the two meals a day for, for kids. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, one other thing. No, no, go ahead. With, with the, um, that third meal, it still needs to be light. That's the very important thing with kids. It still should be a very light meal, something as simple as just fruit to be able to get that wide variety of fruits and vegetables. Fruit, a little bit of salad, um, some crackers, toast, a little bit of soup or something like that, but nothing, not, not, not a big variety and not a really heavy meal at night. Sure. Oh, so here's the other thing. A lot of people um, have thought, oh, well, um, if I'm an athlete, then I've got to eat a whole bunch of food. Or I've, there's a, a, a big thing that goes going on where people will use um, uh, protein shakes to try to build back up the, um, the accessibility of amino acids to build muscle. What you're looking at is you're wanting to, your body is going to access 
those nutrients from the stores that you have first, not from what's circulating immediately after you consume something. The other thing that is important to understand is that with athletes, especially those, your muscles are requiring higher carbohydrate intake more so than it does high protein intake to actually be able to function long term. So even with athletes, um, the amount of calories that they need still in general does not exceed about 1800 at the absolute max, maybe 2000. But again, even then, most people don't need up to that 1800 if they're getting the adequate amount of nutrients that they, that they need. Right. You find marathon runners that, um, that run on, you know, that, that um, consume usually at the most about 1400, 15 to 1600 calories a day, and they do very well, but the meals that they eat are very nutritiously packed meals. One other thing that people have sometimes asked me is weight loss. And because what people will find is when they're eating as they should, they'll all of a sudden start to drop their weight. Especially if you've gone past your 40s, 30s, 40s, they'll drop some weight. One of the things that happens if you're getting the adequate amount of calories that you need, you know, at least that 1,400 to 1,600 amount of calories that you need, if you're getting the adequate amount of calories that you need, you actually will drop your weight to your ideal body weight and then you'll stabilize. I used to think that my ideal body weight was sitting around 130. You know, I, um, I used to run about six miles a day um, and even running six miles a day because of the way that I told you I was eating before, I was unfortunately gaining about 10 pounds a year, which, wasn't, um, which most people didn't notice. But when you're running six miles a day, you should not be gaining 10 pounds a year. But, um, but I was definitely consuming a lot more calories than, than I should have been consuming. But um, when I went to doing, my husband and I, for the most part, do two meals a day, plant-based diet, and you'll find this very commonly, people will drop very close to the weight that they were in high school, and then it stays that way. Even when I, um, so I stay exactly between 110, 115 pounds, even when I'm fasting with patients, sometimes I'll fast with them to be able to help them get through, through a fast um, as a sort of a team effort. I, my weight will, has still stayed stable between that 110, um, and I can still run, run distances that I need as long as I'm following those principles of nutrition that, I, that we talked about. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.